Welcome to Fast Asleep. We are so glad you're here, ready to feed your brain while you sleep. We really loved the catbird seat. I know, I know. So get ready to love two more today from James Thurber, cartoonist, humorist, journalist, and playwright. His stories and cartoons filled the New Yorker for many, many years. Now, we also have Mr. Thurber to thank for the most unpleasant word ever uttered on Fast Asleep. See if you can find it in the first story. Also, if you would like to visit Mr. Thurber's home in Ohio, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. But for now, tuck in for two Thurber gems. We start with The Night the Bed Fell. And we finish with The Lady on 142. I suppose that the high water mark of my youth in Columbus, Ohio, was the night the bed fell on my father. It makes a better recitation, unless, as some friends of mine have said, one has heard it five or six times, than it does a piece of writing. For it is almost necessary to throw furniture around and shake doors and bark like a dog to lend the proper atmosphere and verisimilitude, similarity to the truth, to what is admittedly a somewhat incredible tale. Still, it did take place. It happened then that my father had decided to sleep in the attic one night to be away where he could think. Oh, my mother opposed the notion strongly because she said the old wooden bed up there was unsafe. It was wobbly and the heavy headboard would crash down on father's head in the case the bed fell and kill him. But there was no dissuading him. And at a quarter past 10, he closed the attic door behind him and went up the narrow twisting stairs. We later heard ominous creakings as he crawled into bed. Grandfather, who usually slept in the attic bed when he was with us, had disappeared some days before. Now, on these occasions, he was usually gone six or seven days, but he always returned, growling and out of temper, with the news that the Federal Union was run by a passel of blockheads and that the Army of the Potomac didn't have any more chance than a fiddler's bitch. 
we had visiting us at this time a nervous first cousin of mine named Briggs Beale, who believed that he was likely to cease breathing when he was asleep. Now, it was his feeling that if he were not awakened every hour during the night, he might die of suffocation. He had been accustomed to setting an alarm clock to ring at intervals until morning, but I persuaded him to abandon this. He slept in my room, and I told him that I was such a light sleeper that if anybody quit breathing in the same room with me, well, I would wake up instantly. He tested me the first night, which I had suspected he would, by holding his breath after my regular breathing had convinced him I was asleep. I was not asleep, however, and I called to him, and this seemed to allay his fears a little. But he took the precaution of putting a class of spirits of camphor on a little table at the head of his bed. In case I didn't arouse him until he was almost gone, he said, he would sniff the camphor, a powerful reviver. Briggs, he was not the only member of his family who had his crotchets, uh, unfounded beliefs. Old Aunt Alalissa Beale, who could whistle like a man with her two fingers in her mouth. Now she suffered under the premonition that she was destined to die on South High Street because she had been born on South High Street and married on South High Street. And then there was Aunt Sarah Schoff who never went to bed at night without the fear that a burglar was going to get in and blow chloroform under her door through a tube. To avert this calamity, for she was in greater dread of anesthetics than of losing her household goods, she always piled her money, silverware, and other valuables in a neat stack just outside her bedroom with a note reading, this is all I have. Please take it and do not use your chloroform as this is all I have. <sighs> Aunt Gracie Schof also had a burglar phobia, but she met it with more fortitude. She was confident that burglars had been getting into her house every night for four years. The fact that she never missed anything was to her no proof to the contrary. She always claimed that she scared them off before they could take anything by throwing shoes down the hallway. <laughs> when she went to bed, she piled where she could get at them handily all the shoes there were about her house. Five minutes after she had turned off the light, she would sit up in bed and say, Hark! 
her husband, who had learned to ignore the whole situation as long ago as 1903, would either be sound asleep or pretend to be sound asleep. In either case, he would not respond to her tugging and pulling so that presently she would arise, tiptoe to the door, open it slightly, and heave a shoe down the hall in one direction and its mate down the hall in the other direction. Some nights she threw them all, and some nights only a a couple of pair. But uh, I am straying from the remarkable incidents that took place during the night that the bed fell on father. By midnight, we were all in bed. The layout of the rooms and the disposition of their occupants is important to the understanding of what later occurred. Now, in the front room upstairs, just under father's attic bedroom, were my mother and my brother Terry, who sometimes sang in his sleep, usually marching through Georgia or onward Christian soldier. Anyway, Briggs, Beale, and myself were in a room adjoining this one. My brother Roy was in a room across the hall from ours. Oh, and our bull terrier Rex slept in the hall. My bed was an army cot. One of those affairs which are made wide enough to sleep on comfortably only by putting up flat with the middle section, the two sides, which ordinarily hang down like the sideboards of a drop leaf table. When these sides are up, it is perilous to roll too far toward the edge, for then the cot is likely to tip completely over, bringing the whole bed down on top of one with a tremendous banging crash. Well, this in fact, is precisely what happened about two o'clock in the morning. And it was my mother who, in recalling the scene later, first referred to it as the night the bed fell on your father. Always a deep sleeper and slow to arouse. Yes, I lied to Briggs. I was at first unconscious of what had happened when the iron cot rolled me onto the floor and toppled over on me. It left me still warmly bundled up and unhurt, for the bed rested above me like a canopy. Hence, I did not wake up, only reached the edge of consciousness and went back. The racket, however, instantly awakened my mother in the next room, who came to the immediate conclusion that her worst dread was realized. The big wooden bed upstairs had fallen on father. She therefore screamed, Let's go to your poor father! Now it was this shout, rather than the noise of my cot falling, that awakened Herman in the same room with her. He thought that mother had become for no apparent reason, hysterical. You're all right, Mama, he shouted, trying to calm her. They exchanged shout for shout for perhaps uh, ten seconds. Let's go to your poor father, and you're all right. Now that woke up Briggs, 
By this time, I was conscious of what was going on in a vague way, but did not yet realize that I was under my bed instead of on it. Briggs, awakening in the midst of loud shouts of fear and apprehension, came to the quick conclusion that he was suffocating and that we were all trying to bring him out. With a low moan, he grasped the camphor at the head of his bed and instead of sniffing it, poured it over himself. All the room reeked of camphor. Choked Briggs, like, like a drowning man, well, for he had almost succeeded in stopping his breathing under the deluge of pungent spirits. He leaped out of bed and groped toward the open window, but he came up against one that was closed. Now, with his hand, he beat out the glass, and I could hear it crash and tinkle on the alleyway below. It was at this juncture that I, in trying to get up, had the uncanny sensation of feeling my bed above me, foggy with sleep. I now suspected in my turn that the whole uproar was being made in a frantic endeavor to extricate me from what must be an unheard of and perilous situation. Get me out of this, I bawled. Get me out. I think I had the nightmarish belief that I was entombed in a mine. Bug, gasped Briggs, floundering in his camphor. By this time, my mother, still shouting, pursued by Herman, still shouting, was trying to open the door to the attic in order to go up and get my father's body out of the wreckage. The door was stuck, however, and wouldn't yield. Her frantic pulls on it only added to the general banging and confusion. Roy and the dog were now up, and the one shouting questions, and the other barking. Father, farthest away and soundest sleeper of all, had by this time been awakened by the battering on the attic door. He decided that the house was on fire. Oh, I'm oh, coming, I'm coming, he wailed in a slow, sleepy voice. It took him many minutes to regain full consciousness. Now my mother, still believing he was caught under the bed, detected in his I'm going the mournful, resigned note of one who is preparing to meet his maker. He's dying, she shouted. Oh, I'm all right, Briggs yelled to reassure her. I'm all right. He still believed that it was his own closeness to death that was worrying mother. I found, at last, the light switch to my room, unlocked the door, and Briggs and I joined the others at the attic door. Uh, the dog, who never did like Briggs, jumped for him 
assuming that he was the culprit in whatever was going on, and Roy had to throw Rex and hold him. Now we could hear Father crawling out of bed upstairs. Roy pulled the attic door open with a mighty jerk, and Father came down the stairs, sleepy and irritable, but safe and sound. My mother began to weep when she saw him. Rex began to howl. What in the name of God is going on here? Asked father. Oh, the situation was finally put together like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. Father caught a cold from prowling around in his bare feet, but there were no other bad results. Oh, I'm glad, said mother, who always looked on the bright side of things, that your grandfather wasn't here. And now the lady on 142. The train was 20 minutes late, we found out, when we bought our tickets. So we sat down on a bench in the little waiting room of the Cornwall Bridge Station. It was too hot outside in the sun. This midsummer Saturday had got off to a sulky start, and now at three in the afternoon, it sat, sticky and restive in our laps. There were several others besides Sylvia and myself waiting for the train to get in from Pittsfield. A woman who fanned herself with the daily news. A young lady in her twenties reading a book, a slender tanned man sucking dreamily on the stem of an unlighted pipe. In the center of the room, leaning against a high iron radiator, a small girl stared at each of us in turn, her mouth open as if she had never seen people before. The place had the familiar, pleasant smell of railroad stations in the country, of something compounded of wood and leather and smoke. In the cramped space behind the ticket window, a telegraph instrument clicked intermittently, and once or twice a phone rang and the station master answered it briefly. I couldn't hear what he said. I was glad on such a day that we were going only as far as Gaylordsville, the third stop down the line, 22 minutes away. The station master had told us that our tickets were the first tickets to Gaylordsville he had ever sold. I was idly pondering this small distinction when a train whistle blew in the distance. We all got to our feet, but the station master came out of his cubbyhole and told us it was not our train, but the 1245 from New York, northbound. Presently, the train thundered in like a hurricane and sighed ponderously to a stop. The station master went out onto the platform and came back after a minute or two. The train got heavily underway again for Canaan. 
I was opening a pack of cigarettes when I heard the station master talking on the phone again. This time his words came out clearly. He kept repeating one sentence. He was saying, Conductor Reagan on 142 has the lady the office was asking about. Now the person on the other end of the line did not appear to get the meaning of the sentence. The station master repeated it and hung up. For some reason, I figured that he did not understand it either. Sylvia's eyes had the lost, reflective look they wear when she is trying to remember in what box she packed the Christmas tree ornaments. The expressions on the faces of the woman, the young lady, and the man with the pipe mm, had not changed. And the little staring girl had gone away. Our train was not due for another five minutes, and I sat back and began trying to reconstruct the lady on 142. Hmm. The lady conductor Reagan had. The lady the office was asking about. I moved nearer to Sylvia and whispered, See if the trains are numbered in your timetable. She got the timetable out of her handbag and looked at it. Uh, 1.42, she said. Oh, it's the 12.45 from New York. This was the train that had gone by a few minutes before. The woman was taken sick, said Sylvia. They're probably arranging to have a doctor or her family meet her. The Daily News woman looked around at her briefly. The young woman, who'd been chewing gum, stopped chewing. The man with the pipe eh, seemed oblivious. I lighted a cigarette and sat thinking. The woman on 142, I said to Sylvia. Finally, hmm, she might be almost anything, but she definitely is not sick. The only person who did not stare at me was the man with the pipe. Sylvia gave me her temperature-taking look, kind of a cross between anxiety and vexation. Just then, our train whistled and we all stood up. I picked up our two bags and Sylvia took the sack of string beans we had picked for the Connells. When the train came clanking in, I said in Sylvia's ear, He'll sit near us. You watch. Who? Who will? She said. The stranger, I told her. The man with the pipe. Sylvia laughed. Ha! He's not a stranger, she said. He works for the breeds. I was certain that he didn't. Women like to place people. Every stranger reminds them of somebody. The man with the pipe was sitting mm -hmm, three seats in front of us across the aisle when we got settled. I indicated him with a nod of my head. Sylvia took a book out of the top of her overnight bag and opened it. What's the matter with you? She demanded. I looked around before replying. 
A sleepy man and woman sat across from us. Two middle-aged women in the seat in front of us were discussing the severe, gripping pain one of them had experienced as the result of an inflamed diverticulum. A slim, dark-eyed young woman sat in the seat behind us. She was alone. The trouble with women, I began, is that they explain everything by illness. I have a theory that we would be celebrating the 12th of May or uh, even the 16th of April as our Independence Day if Mrs. Thomas Jefferson hadn't got the idea her husband had a fever and put him to bed. Sylvia found her place in the book. Oh, we've been through all this before, she said. Why couldn't the woman on 142 be sick? That was easy, I told her. Conductor Reagan, I said, got off the train at Cornwall Bridge and spoke to the station master. I've got the woman the office was asking about, is what he said. Sylvia cut in. He said, lady. I gave the little laugh that annoys her. Ha! All conductors say lady, I explained. Now, if a woman had got sick on the train, Reagan would have said, a woman got sick on my train, tell the office. What must have happened is that Reagan found somewhere between Kent and Cornwall Bridge, a woman the office had been looking for. Sylvia didn't close her book. But she looked up. Maybe she got sick before she got on the train, and the office was worried, said Sylvia. She was not giving the problem close attention. If the office knew she got on the train, I said uh, patiently, they wouldn't have asked Reagan to let them know if he found her. They would have told him about her when she got on. Sylvia resumed her reading. Let's just stay out of it, she said. It isn't any of our business. Uh, I hunted for my chicklets, but I couldn't find them. It might be everybody's business, I said. Every patriot's. Oh, I know. I know, said Sylvia. <sighs> you think she's a spy. Well, I still think she's sick. I ignored that. Every conductor on the line has been asked to look out for her, I said. And Reagan found her. She won't be met by her family. She'll be met by the FBI. Uh, or the OPA, said Sylvia. Alfred Hitchcock things don't happen on the New York, New Haven, and Hartford. I saw the conductor coming from the other end of the coach. I'm going to tell the conductor, I said, that Reagan on 142 has got the woman. Oh, no, you're not said Sylvia. You're not going to get us mixed up in this. He probably knows anyway. The conductor. Short, 
stocky, uh, silvery-haired and silent, took up our tickets. You know, he looked like a kindly Ickes. Okay, let's stop right here. Ickes, capital I-C-K-E-S. I suppose it could be Ix. I'm going with Ickes. What does he mean by that? I did some detective work. At the time of the publication of this story, there was a Harold L. Ickes, who was the Secretary of the Interior of our very nation of the United States. Yes, a cabinet member. He held his office from 1933 to 1946, and this story was published in 43. So I'm thinking that this conductor must have looked just like a, how did we say it? kindly Ickes. Okay, sorry. I'll get back to it. He looked like a kindly Ickes. Sylvia, who had stiffened, relaxed when I let him go by without a word about the woman on 142. Oh, he looks as if he knew where the Maltese falcon is hidden. What do you think? said Sylvia with a laugh that always annoys me. <laughs> Nevertheless, I pointed out, you said a little while ago that he probably knows about the woman on 142, and if she just got sick, why should they tell the conductor on this train? I'll rest more easily when I know that they've actually got her. Sylvia kept on reading, as if she hadn't heard me. <sighs> I leaned my head back against the seat and closed my eyes. Oh, the train was slowing down noisily, and a brakeman was yelling, Can't! Can't! When I felt the small, cold pressure against my shoulder. Oh! The voice of the woman in the seat behind me said, I've dropped my copy of Coronet under your seat. She leaned closer and her voice became low and hard. Get off here, mister, she said. Uh, we're going to Gaylordsville, I said. You and your wife are getting off here, mister, she said. Well, I reached for the suitcases on the rack. Oh, what do you want, for heaven's sake? asked Sylvia. Uh, we're getting off here, I told her. Oh, are you really crazy? she demanded. This is only Kent. Come on, sister, said the woman. You take the overnight bag and the beans, and you take the big bag, mister. Oh, Sylvia was furious. Oh, I knew you'd get us into this, she said to me, shouting about spies at the top of your voice. Well, that made me angry. You're the one that mentioned spies, I told her. I didn't. Oh, you kept talking about it and talking about it, said Sylvia. Come on, get off, the two of you, said that cold, hard voice. So we got off. And as I helped Sylvia down the steps, I said, We know too much. Oh, shut up, Sylvia said. 
we didn't have far to go. A big black limousine waited a few steps away, and behind the wheel sat a heavy-set man with cruel lips and small eyes. He scowled when he saw us. The boss don't want nobody up there, he said. Oh, it's all right, Carl, said the woman. Get in, she told us. We climbed into the back seat. She sat between us with the gun in her hand. It was a handsome jeweled Derringer. Alice? Oh, Alice, she'll be waiting for us at Gaylordsville, said Sylvia, in all this heat. Now the house was a long, low, rambling building reached at the end of a poplar-lined drive. Never mind the bags, said the woman. Sylvia took the string beans and her book, and we got out. Two huge mastiffs came bounding off the terrace, snarling. Down, Mata, said the woman. Down, Pedro. And they slunk away, still snarling. Sylvia and I sat side by side on a sofa in a large handsomely appointed living room. Across from us in a chair lounged a tall man with heavily lidded black eyes and long sensitive fingers. Oh, against the door through which we had entered the room leaned a thin undersized young man with his hands in the pockets of his coat and a cigarette hanging from his lower lip. He had a drawn sallow face, and his small, half-closed eyes stared at us, incuriously. In a corner of the room, a squat man twiddled with the dials of a radio. The woman paced up and down, smoking a cigarette in a long holder. Well, Gail, said the lounging man in a soft voice. To what do we owe this unexpected visit? Gail kept pacing. They got Sandra, she said finally. The lounging man did not change expression. Who got Sandra, Gail? He asked softly. Reagan on 142, said Gail. The squat man jumped to his feet. All the time, I say I kill Reagan, he shouted. All the time, I say I bump off Reagan. The lounging man did not look at him. Sit down. And he did, quickly. Gail went on talking. The punk here, he shot off his mouth, she said. He was wise. I looked at the man leaning against the door. She means you, said Sylvia. Huh! And she laughed. The dame was dumb, Gail went on. She thought the lady on the train was sick. I laughed. She means you, I said to Sylvia. The punk was blowing his top all over the train, said Gail. I had to bring him along. Sylvia, who had the beans on her lap, began breaking and stringing them. Well, my dear lady, 
said the lounging man. Almost homely little touch. Eh? What's a touch? demanded the squat man. Touch, I told him. Gail sat down in a chair. Who's going to rub him out? she asked. Freddy, said the lounging man. Oh, and the squat man was on his feet again. Nah, nah, he shouted. Not to punk. To punk bump off the last six or seven people. The lounging man looked at him. He paled and sat down. I thought you were the punk, said Sylvia. I just looked at her coldly. Hey, I know where I've seen you before, I said to the lounging man. It was at Zagreb in 1927. <gasps> Tilden took you in straight sets. Six love, six love, six love. Ooh, the man's eyes glittered. I think I bump off this man myself, he said. And Freddy walked over and handed the lounging man an automatic. At this moment, the door Freddy had been leaning against burst open and in rushed the man with the pipe, shouting, Gail, Gail, Gaylordsville, Gaylordsville bawled the brakeman. Sylvia was shaking me by the arm. Oh, quit moaning, she said. Everybody is looking at you. I rubbed my forehead with a handkerchief. Hurry up, said Sylvia. They don't stop here long. I pulled the bags down and we got off. Have you got the beans? I asked Sylvia. Alice Connell was waiting for us. On the way to their house in the car, Sylvia began to tell Alice about the woman on 142. I didn't say anything. He thought <laughs> she was a spy, said Sylvia. Ah, and they both laughed. Well, she probably got sick on the train, said Alice. They were probably arranging for her doctor to meet her at the station. That is just what I told him, said Sylvia. I lighted a cigarette. The lady on 142, I said firmly, was definitely not sick. Oh, Lord, said Sylvia. Here we go again. Good night.